Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of the Senior Advisory Board of Wise Brussels. That's Women in International Security. I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, and defense. This is a special episode in which we are hosting Aurora Akanksha. She has put forward her candidacy for the position of UN Secretary General. She is all of 34 and she has no national sponsorship. That's an amazing step that definitely merits conversation and inquiry. Hi, Aurora. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you guys. I'm a fan of the work that you do and the empowerment that you give to so many women and girls out there. So I'm honored and humbled. Well, we're really, really glad to have you with us today. Aurora, why don't we just go cut to the chase? First of all, tell us a bit about yourself and why you decided that the thing you needed to do was to put forward your candidacy to replace an incumbent Secretary General who's running for a second term. Absolutely. So I'll start by sharing my personal journey as a person and then my decision on running for this position. So I was born to a family where all four of my grandparents were refugees from Pakistan to India. On my dad's side, my grandparents were street vendors. They sold tea and samosas on the streets of Punjab. They couldn't finish their education, even high school, because they had to leave for India after the partition. On my mom's side, my grandfather was the only earning member supporting a family of seven. And he was a mailman with the government. He was a clerk. And his goal was to make sure that his children were educated. So my parents are one of the first physicians in their respective um, villages and town. And I was born in a family that values education and hard work and knows that that's a great equalizer for anyone to move forward. When I was six, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And I had a really good childhood in Saudi. My neighbors were a family of 10. There were three girls my age and in Ramadan, which is going on now, we would go to their house. They would come to our house on the weekend. And back then we didn't have Internet. So they helped my dad buy his car, show him where the grocery store was and just get a feel of the land. We lived close to Yemen. So there were a lot of Yemeni in the neighborhood and we had um, beaches and stuff. So it was a different Saudi than than you just hear in conversations. Uh, There were schools for girls, but they didn't have it in English. There was an American school quite far away and my parents couldn't afford it as well. So the schools were in Arabic. Math was in Arabic, science was in Arabic, and it was quite challenging for me to pick up. So I was homeschooled till the age of nine. And then I went to boarding school in India. And that's where I finished my education. I moved to Canada for college. I graduated business in business, accounting and economics. And um, Canada was a great experience. I I finished my college there, uh, went on to join PricewaterhouseCoopers in audit, became a manager, taught audit, wrote standards for Canada. And one day I get a call from the UN to be part of the financial reforms team of the UN under the current secretary general. And I had just turned 30 and I thought, wow, New York is a great place to be. And I was thrilled that all my experiences at that time would contribute to making a difference in the world. So when I joined the UN, I was thrilled to be an employee and my decision to run is influenced by what I have learned about the UN while working here, the personal journey that I have gone through as a person. So I think what I've learned while working here at the UN, UN from the outside appears to be such a pristine and pure organization and you look up to it, you're like, wow, this is a great place to be making a difference. But what I've learned here is that We're not using the tools at our disposal to make a great difference in the world. And let me explain that. 
We have decision-making bodies in the UN, which is the most people know about the UN. And that is where a lot of media focuses, a lot of think tank focuses, but that's tip of the iceberg. That's 25% of the UN. The 75% is the implementation bodies headed by the Secretary General, where we have close to 100 entities within the UN. We have a budget of more than 50 billion. For every dollar, 30 cents is used for the cause. The rest goes into bureaucracy. Climate change, the number is even more dismal. For every dollar, 15 cents is used towards nature-based solution. The rest goes into talking, holding conferences, writing reports about it. And like every employee, I was aghast when I saw all this. And, um, And I just was like, okay, maybe I'm missing something. I should just put my head down and go on with my job. In six weeks of being at the UN, I got hit by a cab. I was leaving work late at midnight. It was 42nd and 1st. I got hit by a cab. I was taken to the ER. I had broken my knee, bleeding and bruising on the left side of my body. I didn't know the extent of internal damage. And I was thinking to myself, wow, if I had died today, what would my obituary read? Aurora was a selfish person dedicated to the pursuit of happiness for herself alone. Because until that time, which is February of 2017, I had lived a very narrow life, a life which was almost like my arm's length. I focused on collecting professional trophies for myself. I would donate a little, volunteer a little, but not use my talents and abilities in making a big difference in the world. And here I was almost on my deathbed thinking, wow, what have I done my entire life? I've been a taker. I've been a taker from my grandparents. I've been a taker from women who've come before me. I've been a taker from society. I've done nothing and I'm just filled with shame and regret. And and in those moments, I was talking to God and telling him, can you please help me get through this? Like, you know, I promise I'll make difference in my life and, and dedicated to saving others. So God kept his promise. I recovered from the accident and um, I recovered and I'm keeping mine, which is to make a difference at the UN. And of course, it wasn't a linear trajectory of like, you know, running for this position. There were a lot of things in between. It's a very cogent story, but let me take you back slightly. You said you got a call from the UN. Why did you get a call from the UN? The context was that Trump was elected as president of the US and one of the big issues on his plate was the reforms of the UN, specifically the financial reforms of the UN because they contribute $10 billion of the total budget. And he had been critical of the UN. And then the current secretary general was selected October, 2016. President Trump was elected November 2016 and reforms of the UN, specifically financial reforms, was a huge agenda from the US to the UN. So the secretary general asked his team, transition team, to look out for talent from the private sector who have worked in financial reforms, in making internal controls more strong, in helping in automation and to bring that fresh perspective. And you were recommended by Canada or how did that come about? No, I was recommended by people who formerly worked at the UN. Right. Okay. That's very interesting because I worked at the UN for seven years and therefore I know that it's quite difficult to get into. Well, then, you know, you cannot get in until someone pulls you in. (laughs) Exactly. So that in itself seems to me something very worthwhile, you know, addressing in the fullness of time. But coming back to your story, which is a fascinating story, I like the fact that you have the boldness to think that your response to your what you call greed, but maybe your fortune was to give something back. But nonetheless, it's a big leap between giving something back and deciding to run for secretary general. Yeah, I think there were a lot of steps in between. So I'll walk you through them. So my accident happened in Feb of 2017, just six weeks off joining the UN. 
So what did I learn in those six weeks? I'll share with you a few stories. Well, it doesn't take too long to figure out that most of the job of the UN is to write reports and talk about things than actually doing things. But of course, I'm learning, so I, I keep quiet. I think the few experiences that shaped me before my accident were, first of all, I joined December 21, 2016, one week before everyone else who was part of the transition team joined. So the Secretary General's first day in office was January 2nd. And my boss at that time said I should definitely attend the inaugural that he gives to staff before takes his office. And I was like, oh, it's not such a big deal. Like, you know, I'm, I'll attend another one. And he told me that this doesn't happen a lot, that you, there's a change of Secretary General and you happen to be in the place where the change is happening. So you must go. And I was like, okay, sure. So the, it was supposed to start at 9.15, the inaugural in the lobby. And there was a makeshift podium. And I got there at nine, wanting to get a good spot. And of course, like, you know, a, a full view of the whole event unfolding. At 9.15, the secretary general comes with his entourage. They go at the podium. And as soon as he gets there, behind him come a series of men, all in suits, ASGs and USG, and just bypass all the staff and stand like a horseshoe in front of the podium. And that, I was just one week into the UN and I lost my mind. I was like, what? What is this? How I, like, you know, especially coming from private sector as an auditor, I have audited Fortune 500 clients to NGOs, to governments, to like everything in between. And I have never seen leadership behave like this. I have never seen leadership composed of only one gender. First of all, they were all men in suit. I have never seen leadership be so self-interested and self-wested that you just cut the staff. The job of any leader is to create an environment for people to produce. Let's think about it, though. Before he was elected, I have a very strong recollection of this, that in the previous campaign for the Secretary General, it was commonly thought that in the rotation system, it was the rotation of Eastern Europe. And really, one of the very few criteria anybody put forward was that it would be a woman. And hey, presto, we ended up with a man from Western Europe. So are you surprised that there was a horseshoe of men around him? Elena, this is such an interesting question, and I will answer it honestly. The selection of previous secretary general, I wasn't involved or even observing or following at all. Because the truth of the matter is, those who are within the UN universe think of UN as the center of the universe, of their universe. But those of us who are not involved in any way to general public, UN is like such an elitist castle on the hill that normal people, we don't even care. But with that being said, I've, of course, reflected a lot on the hypocrisy of the 2016 election and the dynamic where there was, there was like reading the documents, there was pressure to have a woman because Hillary Clinton was also running. And there was this whole push by equality now and other organizations like yourself as well, that we need a woman to be leading this organization. We need to break the glass ceiling. So we had seven out of 13 candidates that were phenomenal women and the same profile as the current secretary general, heads of UN entity, same age group, and yet we chose a man. So there is a systemic sexism in the system. And you know what's interesting? So this time we give them a different option, me. And then they have other excuses. So my question is, what is that one dream woman that all men can live with? Absolutely. Like, what is that? That's a very, very good question. But nonetheless, this is a series about women and leadership. And it is incumbent upon me to put it to you Aurora, that you obviously have many fine qualities, but leadership, you haven't had a lot of leadership experience up until now. So how do you square that with the need to be a leader of an organization? 
What is leadership is a different definition to a lot of people. Leadership is not a title. Because if it is a title, then we have a ton of bad performing leaders that don't deserve that title. So if leadership is inspiring change, if leadership is bringing forth new idea, I've already proved myself to be a leader in the last few months. The fact that I saw a system that is not working, a system that everyone within the system acknowledges its shortcomings, is not doing anything about it. And I have tried to bring that to attention. I have demonstrated my leadership qualities. With that being said, I will say one thing. The job of a leader is not to do everything alone. The job of a leader is to build an environment where everyone is included and wants to be part of the solution. My generation thinks of UN, I'll repeat myself, as a castle on the hill. We need to be connected to the powerful. We need to be part of an elite establishment to even be considered ever applying for a diplomat position or any other leadership position at the UN. My candidacy has inspired people, oh, I can, I can break this glass ceiling of politics where our generation is given visitation rights, but not participation rights. Every politician and leader, women leader included, say youth is at the center. Where is that center? So I think I have demonstrated leadership in my candidacy. I have demonstrated leadership in my vision statement. I have demonstrated leadership in the work I have done at the UN of being part of the financial reforms. A title is not leadership. A title is never leadership. A title is never leadership, but experience does matter. This is not attacking you. This is simply bringing out for our audience because they will want to know these things. I think you're giving very cogent answers to very important questions. There's no doubt about it. There's no one model. The fact that for a variety of reasons, men have always chosen one model of leadership, one model of organization, one model of management doesn't mean that they're right, because if they were right, then maybe the UN would look like a different organization today. I completely agree with you. And I absolutely understand that this is a question that must be asked. But we have to really distinguish that men in politics alone have used this model. Startups, whenever a great app comes, we never pause and ask ourselves the age of that person. We just use the service that we're getting out of it. My generation has ushered the industrial revolution. Mark Zuckerberg was almost a teenager when Facebook was created, which is a pleasure that we all enjoy of connectivity. So I think it's just in this political realm, which is more masculine dominated than other fields, where this model is that one. And Elena, I don't know who that one is, because I thought the seven candidates in 2016 were phenomenal. Phenomenal. Phenomenally yes, great. Yes, I agree with you totally. I mean, you know, sort of, I think there was a phenomenal field. I think there's phenomenal women out there. So I very much admire you for, you know, picking up on that and doing it. But it is so dispiriting to women everywhere that um, I started my career. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. My career in the UN started entirely differently. I um, was asked to represent Israel because I uh, dual national at the women's debate in the third committee, and that was in 1993. Uh, for a variety of reasons, largely that the diplomat who was meant to do the whole of the third committee had an accident, and I was obviously getting on very well, so they asked me to do the whole of it. I thought, I'm just born to do this. I really enjoy it. At that time, you faxed. I faxed <laughs> the university because I was a university lecturer back in Tel Aviv saying, sorry, I'll be back in three months' time and did the whole of the third committee. But for the life of me, I couldn't understand then and I can't understand why t today there are human rights and women's rights. And I said as much, why am I not human? 
why is being a woman different? I can understand why there's children's rights. I can understand why there's handicapped rights. But why are women's rights always separate? And for me, this has been a burning question. I want equal opportunity. I don't want equal rights in the sense of somebody bestows me a right. No, just give me equal opportunity and I'll get there by myself. And I think one of the things that's happened over the years, I feel that I was born into a much more meritocratic world in a very bizarre way. A lot of people wouldn't believe it, but I think that born in the 60s, maybe it was the post-war effect. A lot of people didn't have money, but the emphasis was on education and you were just meant to get on with it. And there were more openings. On the other hand, women had to fight and fight and fight. So for me, coming from an older generation, I'm really happy that you're doing what you're doing. But I've never had an answer as to why women's rights are different from human rights. Apparently, we're not human. We have a little playpen where we can play in. So anybody who breaks that playpen is great as far as I'm concerned. Those are such beautiful comments. And I have a few things to add. 60s was a beautiful time to be born in. Like I... One thing I've been reflecting, because of course I've been getting, um, I feel that there is a level of discrimination that I'm experiencing in my candidacy when discussing with member states, because there's just a bias around being different, being a different age, almost half the average secretary general having a different experience profile, and it's translating into discrimination where they're not communicating and engaging in diplomacy, which they claim they are experts in. And I've just been thinking, when did this generation that has done so much great work become so stagnant? This is the generation that fought Vietnam War. This is the generation that ushered like hippies and Beatles and like all the great stuff that your generation has done. Trans. I was born in the 60s. They, the baby boomers, they grew up in the 60s. They're very different. So they sort of... But I think you're actually pointing out something else. It's nothing to do with the 60s. I think you're pointing out something else. I remember as a peacekeeper in Bosnia subsequently thinking, this is weird. There was a whole group of us who were in our early 30s who felt, you know, this was the post-Cold War world and we were all out there trying to make a difference. And we believed it. And we were being held back by the people in New York, by people in capitals who were all in their 60s and 70s. And you sort of felt, you know, you're in your last jobs. This is the time for you to be brave. We're the ones that should be worried about, you know, getting married, having children, uh, uh, our pensions, and we're out there fighting wars and peacekeeping. And you are, you know, sort of are the ones who are sitting there kind of going, oh, no, 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 you couldn't possibly do that. That's all wrong. So there is an inversion that comes with age, which I find very upsetting, which is why I think your emphasis on youth is really, really, really correct. But let me take you, though, to peacekeeping, because one of the things I noticed in your vision statement was that you want to abolish peacekeeping. So you've worked in peacekeeping missions. You would know that from early 90s, To now, uh, we've had a spur of peacekeeping missions, but they really haven't done or fulfilled any of their promises. We've transitioned, like we've added the component of R2P, uh, responsibility to protect. We still are not upholding that in ways that we are more than capable of. That today, when you speak to colleagues from African peacekeeping missions and just those within the arena, they say peacekeeping has become the third enemy. You have two people fighting and now you have a third enemy that is indifferent, that they've both decided to merge against us. And I think what happened in Congo last month with the Italian ambassador being shot is a demonstration that 
people are retaliating against prolonged peacekeeping missions with no end in sight. So I am very vocal about transitioning those to closing and letting bilateral or regional players take a stronger role because peacekeeping is mandated by Security Council. And let's be honest, they only mandate when there is a vested interest somewhere that can be seen. There have been so many conflicts. We should have seen a peacekeeping mission. We don't. So we see it when it serves one of the vested interests. That's one bias we have. And secondly, we haven't seen one peacekeeping mission be successful. I mean, if you're Israel and India peacekeeping mission, those are the two initial ones. We've still had them. And the India one, they are willing to close the two parties. I read that there is a desire to bilaterally solve it. So I'm very open about transitioning it either to closure or to a special political mission and a development country team and allowing regional players to be more strengthened. AU can play a stronger part in addressing peacekeeping missions, which they do, but they're not, they're not the deciding factor if a peacekeeping mission will happen, but they should be if needed and not a global body that's far off from the problem. Because we don't have much time, then we can't go down fully all of these. But I was very also struck that one of the emphases throughout your vision statement was on localization. And actually, that does come back for me to peacekeeping, because one of the more brilliant young men I've come across lately, um, he's a military in the Belgian military, uh, Pierre Dehaene, and he wrote something called the localization strategy, which he um, devised in the Sahel, in which the point was that if you help local people and give them work, they'll be less interested in going to war. And I saw that throughout your vision statement, there is a sense of localization. Can you talk to that maybe? Because I think it's very, very interesting. I, I think I, I realized there's three themes that are running through everything that I proposed. One is technology, one is youth, the other is localization. And for that, that means ground up solutions and not top down solution. And the first one being in the financing model of the UN for climate change, which is an existential threat, is all national government to like international organization and national governments. But projects are implemented by the locals. So by the time money trickles down, you don't have much left. And all governments know this in all republics function at a tri-party level, federal, state and municipal. We need to strengthen the relationship between international organization and local government so they can directly implement projects. They can directly collaborate. That's one aspect of localization that I really want to harness. Local governments, municipal governments. And other aspect of localization is in development. Over the last 40 years, I don't know if you know the stat, but in 1980, China's GDP was below all but three African countries. And look where China is today and where Africa is it hasn't achieved its potential, as we all know it's capable of. It has the best natural resources, great talent, willing to make a difference in the world. And I think the issue is that over the last 40 years, we followed a top-down regonomics development model. You give money to the top, hope it'll trickle down. And that top has looked like cash incentives during Ethiopia. Then it's looked like giving it to governments. Then it's looked like giving it to white NGOs. Then it's looked like giving it to local big NGOs but never to the people. So why don't we bring universal internet and universal education? Those are the greatest equalizers for 21st century and will allow people to solve their problems, uplift themselves from poverty, their community and countries and world as a whole. So that's localization in government. And I think there's another level of localization, which is just bringing people on board, all hands on the deck and having youth be involved in leadership position and in humanitarian emergencies. So, in humanitarian emergencies, you know, you worked in it. The biggest thing is you cannot predict how those emergencies will go. It changes minute by minute, day by day. Having gone through COVID, we can all agree what that is. Like masks, no masks, 
lockdown, like, you know, I mean, just the unpredictability that we went through in the initial phases. Humanitarian emergencies are managed by UN in a New York Geneva model. Oh, let's write a report, A, B, C, D. That doesn't translate to ground. You write those reports in six months, it's changed. So I think I want to introduce a flexible local model of humanitarian emergency, which is principle-based and the employment is volunteer-based three to six months. Because when an emergency happens, a lot of people just want to go help. Why are we then wasting money on all this recruitment processes that don't materialize on time and most of the money goes in paying for staff salary? Okay, so here's the big question. What it seems to me that you are trying to do, and I admire you for, for this, is go to first principles of the UN Charter. Because the preamble of the UN Charter, in fact, its very first statement is, we, the peoples of the United Nations, determined etc, etc, etc. And yet, it then somehow has become the states that have taken all power and all responsibility. So what has, there's a nexus here that has never quite been resolved between the people and the states. In a sense, you're a representative of it. Which state, no state wants to sponsor you so far, and I strongly hope a state will. But what you're basically talking about is using the UN to return power to the people. Am I right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that it's not really states. It's just these leadership elite who are the political establishment of those countries and the leadership of the UN, where it's become like a revolving door. Foreign minister of one country, UN ambassador to something else, USG here. So it's just a a musical chair that they keep playing and maintaining that status quo. So nations are great. Nations are made of people. Leadership on both sides, at the at the executive level of countries and at the UN leadership level, that needs to really awaken to the fact that 7.8 billion people rely on this organization and not just the 700 of you at top. And that is what is at stake. And I think my generation is ready to make noise about that. My generation is ready to say, we are not going to serve 193 politicians, we're going to serve 7.8 billion people. So now let's go back to you, unfortunately, having a car accident. What brought about that vision that said that you have to do all of these things? So I think the car accident was like, you know, at 30, you think the best of life is ahead of you. That brush with mortality, I think, made me realize what's important, what's not important. And all these materialistic things do not come with you at all. What comes with you is memories, the emotions that that you've experienced and the feeling of being proud of what you've contributed to the world. I wasn't proud of anything. I was just ashamed The accident happened on a Thursday midnight. I was discharged after eight hours. And that's when life began. Like, I just could not comprehend the emotions that I was going through. It's a a pain, regret, I think a form of PTSD, a guilt. And I started working on Monday from home. I just, I could not take any of that. And I think I'd exhausted my tears. I'd exhausted, like, just lying on my bed and just reflecting. So on Monday, I mean, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm not dead. What can I do? I'm at United Nations. I have the opportunity to make a difference. Let me now take my job a bit more seriously. And at that time, I was doing my job to the best of my ability, but my attitude was a job. My task is A, I'm going to deliver on A. Now, my task is the UN needs to serve the people. What can I do in making sure that that happens? So it just, others' problems, the whole world's problem became my my own problems. I dedicated two years to the reform. For the first time, we had reforms that were inclusive. In the past, you worked at the UN, you would know this. Usually reform circle is very small. ASG, USG, and just the directors and a few people in New York, and we're done. 
And here we had a hundred people team from all SPMs, all offices, all peacekeeping missions, all departments of the UN to say, okay, what should the financial reforms be? We do a great job. And Elena, guess what happens? Management scrubs it all. No, too bold. One of the recommendations was electronic data exchange be changed to internet. No. So um, you can imagine like what the, what happened with the other bold ones. Um, and I was devastated. This was December 2018. And I was like, what? And my colleagues, they were laughing at me. They're like, ah, you're such a child. This is the ninth secretary general, eighth reform. You should have thought, how could this be any different? Like, you know, that, that was the level of complacency I used to say. And I was like, it's going to be different because I'm on it. Like, you guys have to do, like, you know, I would inspire and motivate. And, and this is what happened. And, and at that time, the system gives you, like, you know, you're heartbroken. And I'm sure you've experienced this. I know every person at some point within the UN has gone through exactly what I went through, where you're disillusioned. You're like, you cannot believe. You cannot believe what you're seeing. And, and you're given two choices. You're given a choice to walk away because this is not for you, you should find another job, or you just accept things as they are and enjoy the privileges and perks of the great job that you fortunately have been able to find. And I was like, no. And that's why in my campaign video, there's this line that 10,059,000 people have come before me because that's my employee ID. There is a new way. And I think for me at that time, I decided that the way was going to be the Secretary General of the UN. And, and it's a very interesting story, which I'd like to share with you on December 2018, reforms conclude. And I was like, no, I'm heartbroken, but still in love. I'm going to make do my part. And January 2019, I decide to run for SG. And of course, that didn't mean that I was going to run. Like, I trust me, six months, I tried to find people who could run. I had conversation with ambassadors, with former head of state, a former foreign minister. And I said, you know, the system isn't working. Look at all these data facts. Like, you look at this, they're like, oh, we know all this. We know more than you do. And I said, like, so why are you not doing anything about it? And they're like, oh, we can't. And I said, why? Like, I just learned about this in two years. You've known this for a while. And why are we not doing anything about it? And, and I think I did try to find other candidates who would run. And I couldn't. And that's when in July 2019, I turned 33. And I was like, you know what? I just have to do this myself. And I will have to put my head down and, and do this. And then COVID happened in March 2020. And I was like, am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And then I realized that my time at the UN, I've been able to justify going through a job that wasn't adding value, wasn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I kept going, thinking that one day I will get to share with the world and do it. So even through COVID, I was like, I'm just going to do this. And miraculously, um, I had God gave me the strength and I was able to announce my candidacy Feb 9th, 2021, the four years after my anniversary of that accident, keeping my promise to God. And, and it's a very interesting story how I announced it, but I'll pause. Well, I think that is a fascinating story. I think it's an important story. I think it's a story that can inspire a lot of women into leadership. I think there's just one element I want to add on leadership. Just one element. You'll enjoy the story. I think you'll enjoy it. You know, something about leadership that I'm asked that I don't have enough experience and how am I able to do a good job? And I think leadership is not just about the passage of time. It's about having your moral and conscious compass with you all the time. And I'll give you an example. When I was in Africa on a work trip in Uganda, I saw a child eat mud. It was a devastating image for me. And it's and all I could do for her, for that little girl at that time, was give her some food and um, and money 
it, she was by the gas station eating mud and people were crossing and, and no one was stopping. And, and I was, um, I was in pain because here I was living in a good hotel, being able to eat everything. And all I could do for her at that time was give her some food and cash. But that image just stuck with me. So I came back to New York and I asked one of our senior officials with 25 years of experience, you know, the child is eating mud. What can we do about it? And he said, I quote, mud is good for children. It has iron. Mud is good for children. It has iron. Well, well. I have heard worse, I have to say, but let's leave it at that. I have one more question, actually. Are you getting sponsorship and interest from senior women, both in the organization and outside it? I am so glad you asked this question because I've been dying to say this at the right platform. <laughs> you know, women empowerment is, um, is critical because we have been marginalized in society and, and human rights for some reason have ignored us and we have been marginalized. But there is a conversation that we must very critically as women have. Even within women, we don't support each other. Even within women, some are more equal than others. I have not gotten support from senior women in the field. I don't know why. I've reached out to them. I have expressed my gratitude and inspiration at their efforts and initiatives all along. And I haven't received that same interest. And I think this is where we need to have a deeper conversation that it's no longer he for she, it's she for she, and it's she for all she. Not just she for a she that looks like the she, not just she for a she that's the same age as that she, it's she for all she. And there is a generational bias within women that we need to confront and we need to acknowledge. And no, I haven't received it, but I really hope to God that I'm able to bridge that generational gap between women, that they don't consider me as a threat and they consider that this is a movement that will empower all women and not just about me. She for All She is an excellent place on which to end. Aurora Akancha, I wish you all the very best. If I was voting, you'd have my vote. I hope it does come to the point in which people can maybe vote for the UN Secretary General and not just member states, or maybe not just the Security Council. We don't really know um, in what way or another. But I think the very fact that you are running is a very important statement for women. And I think you've introduced some fascinating ideas about leadership. We have an ongoing conversation here about what leadership is. And I think that's the important thing um, to keep in mind. So that's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to um, Aurora Kancha. Thank you so much. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. And please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. <laughs>